Well, this morning we are starting a, a new series, and this series is titled Just Love, Just Love. And we're going to be reading uh, from the book of Nahum. Now, Nahum, this series, Just Love, is a study in uh, the book of Nahum. And so um, I'd like to ask you, maybe some of you already did this, but I'd like to ask you, if you would, to, to read through this book uh, sometime this week, if you haven't already. It's not a, it's not a long book. But we're going to spend the next four weeks studying the book of Nahum. And uh, we're going to be reading today from Nahum chapter 1. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6. Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. My message today is titled, God's Holiness and Power. God's Holiness and Power. Nahum 1, 1 reads like this, A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. Uh, he rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. Verse 5 says, The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. And that phrase, the rocks, is a reference to the mountains. The rocks that form the mountains are shattered before him. So today we're starting a new sermon series titled, Just Love. And as I said, it's a series that's based on the Old Testament book of Nahum. And so Just Love is a, is a reference to... To God's justice and God's mercy. Just love. Justice and mercy. There is no conflict. This is a big idea of this series that we're going to be in throughout this month of August. There is no conflict between God's justice and God's mercy. Because God's, God's love, the love that He demonstrates, is a just love. Just love is justice and mercy. It's a, it's a balanced view of God that sometimes we, quite frankly, we don't see. Paul wrote to, to the Romans and he told them, Consider therefore the goodness and the severity of God. Uh, some translations say, Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. God is good, but God is also stern. God is kind, but God is stern as well. It's just love, justice, and mercy. So that's, we're going to, what's, that's what we're going to be talking about this, uh, this month through this series in the book of Nahum, Just Love. Now, Nahum is not a very well-known book. In fact, I wonder how many of you, you don't have to give yourself away, but I wonder how many of you didn't even know there was a book named Nahum in the Bible. Well, there, there is. And when we make it to heaven, then we might meet Nahum. And I want to be able to tell him, I read your book. And I want to be able to tell him, I, I learned from your book. So I think it's important that, that we read this book, we study it. I, I want to give you some background as we start this series. How many of you like to watch movies that are sequels? 
Do you like sequels or books, you know, that are, that are sequels? My wife loves to read, and, and uh, there's this website that gives away free books on Kindle. And so she'll get the free books. Well, it turns out it's actually like a, a part one of a series. You know, there's several sequels, and so she'll end up buying the rest. So they know what they're doing because she likes to read sequels. <clears throat> many of you, many of us like to read or watch sequels. Sequels, of course, as you know, are a continuation of a story. And certainly Hollywood has learned the value of sequels in the movie industry. And, and book publishers will often encourage writers to write a, a sequel, a follow-up to a bestseller. And so you may not realize this, but the Bible contains a sequel. Nahum, this book of Nahum, is a, a sequel to Jonah. It's like Jonah part two. It's Jonah the sequel. Now, Jonah, as you know, is a story, and I think many of you, most of you know this, the story of a, of a disobedient prophet who refused to follow God's call to go preach in Nineveh. Instead, he boarded a ship that was headed in the opposite direction, and as a result of his disobedience, he was thrown overboard by the other sailors, sailors because he... Uh, they cast lots to see what the problem was. It fell on him, and, and he recognized that God was, it was causing this storm. And so he told them, throw me overboard, and they didn't want to. But the storm got severe enough that they felt like they had no choice. So they threw him overboard, and immediately the storm stopped. It calmed completely. Well, God had prepared a great fish that swallowed him, and then eventually threw him up on the shore, on dry ground. And so he was given a second chance to go to Nineveh to preach the message that God wanted him to preach. He, and it was a message of repentance. It was a message of, of repent because God's judgment is coming upon you. So he eventually went to Nineveh after, after, Nineveh after he had this experience. I would have gone too. But he still didn't want to deliver this message of repentance. In fact, when he delivered it and the, the people of Nineveh repented, then he was upset about it. He didn't really want them to repent. And why was that? Why the reluctance uh, at, at going to preach this, this message? Why the anger that the people of Nineveh actually believed him and repented of their sin? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was a mortal enemy of Israel. And so Nineveh is a capital, and all, all the, the nation of Israel, uh, they were wicked. Nineveh was a, a wicked city. Nineveh was the epitome of everything that Jonah hated in people who were not Jews like himself. He was a nationalist. It was about, you know, Jews and, and the Jewish state, and, and everybody else was the enemy. And so the Ninevites were evil. They had a reputation for cruelty that is hard for us to fathom today. Their specialty was, a, was this, a, this very disgusting type of cruelty where if their army captured a city or a country, the soldiers would perform unspeakable atrocities against the people, against the men, the women, even the children were killed. They would skin people alive. They would decapitate the, the men, they would mutilate, they would rip out their tongues. They would bury them in, in the ground up to their neck, and then they would, they would spike their, 
their tongues into the ground and then eventually rip them up. And, and, and then the heads that were decapitated, they would make a pyramid of those heads. Uh, they would do unspeakable things. So it would be fair to say that everyone feared the Assyrians and they hated the Assyrians. They, they feared Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, and, and they hated them. So eventually, as I said, Jonah did preach God's message of repentance to Nineveh. He told them that if he didn't give up their sin, their brutal practices, their oppression, their evil ways, that God was going to crush them. And as I said, so much to his chagrin, Nineveh, to Jonah's chagrin, Nineveh repented. The people of Nineveh sought God. They turned to God. And, and so God spared them. This judgment that he had said he, had said he was going to bring upon them. He, he gave them a reprieve. He stopped the judgment. He spared them for the time being. Because now we fast forward about a hundred years. hundred years. And Jonah, I don't know if he's still around or not. Probably not. You know, he's long gone. Uh, but it's a new generation. Children have been born. Grandchildren have been born. There's a new king of Assyria. And you can guess what happened, right? They forgot, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, forgot about their repentance. They forgot about that uh, message of judgment that would come if they didn't repent. So they repented of their repentance. The Bible talks this, uh, expresses this and gives us a visual of a dog returning to its vomit. They repented of their repentance. They turned around their turnaround. And the time of sorrow over their evil, the time of uh, of, of sorrow over their sinful condition was just an interruption in their long history of oppression and sin, long history that eventually returned. And so their cruelty returned. It increased. And they once again went out to capture, to torture, and to enslave other nations. And so as a part of this, going back out, they went back out against Israel and they attacked them, they destroyed Israel, they overran Judah as well, and they just conquered all those towns, they laid, they laid siege to Jerusalem. So in those days of trouble, the Jewish people were like, God, you have forgotten about us. Why is this happening to us? Why have the Assyrians once again attacked us and laid siege to our cities? And so God sent another prophet, not Jonah, but God sent Nahum with a divine message of judgment for Nineveh again. And so his words provide us an understanding of God's character today. The first few verses of this first chapter of Nahum are really a poem or a hymn about God's character, specifically God's sovereignty. So Nahum describes God's power, his character, he, he, Nahum emphasizes God's ability to bring his enemies to complete destruction. And so this, this prophecy was to be a warning against Nineveh, but it was also to be a comfort for the people of Israel. To know that God's got your back. It feels good to know that God's got your back. When I was in, in the sixth grade, I believe, maybe seventh grade, I was just a normal skinny kid and, 
in middle school or junior high, as we called it back then. And uh, for some reason, some guy, my grade, but bigger than me, that I don't remember even knowing him, he started coming to me in school, in the hallway, out on the playground. I remember him talking to me out on the playground. And he would come to me. He'd say to me, I'm going to beat you up. But You know, I wasn't a fighter. You know, I was a lover. You know, I, I, I didn't fight. You know, but he, he was a, a streetwise kid. The, the, the school where we attended, there were a lot of streetwise kids, even at that age. And so he would come to me every day. He'd say, look at me. I'm going to beat you up. Well, I was scared to death. I didn't know how to fight. And I didn't even know why he wanted to beat me up. Well, one day, I never told anybody, but one day I had a good friend of mine who, who was a skinny kid, but I'm talking about streetwise. This guy knew how to fight. He was in fights regularly. I'd seen him fight. But he was a friend of mine, and he was a tough kid. He was a tough kid. He had kind of, yeah, just the way he was, you know, he had kind of bloodshot eyes for some reason. They really weren't, but they looked that way. So his nickname was Wino. We all called him Wino. His name was Ricky. But nobody called him Ricky. We called him Wino. And he, he accepted that. I think he kind of wore that as a, as a badge of honor. Yeah, Wino. But he was tough. He was tough. And he overheard this guy telling me one time, I'm going to beat you up. And he turned to me and says, don't worry about it. I got your back. He's not going to beat you up. If he does, I'll get him. I said, well, let's try to get him before he beats me up. You know, try, <laughs> try to stop him. You know, and, but I, I tell you what, I did feel good knowing that Wino had my back. If I, if I could ask for anybody else to tell me, I got you covered, I would have picked Wino. He really was a good guy, and I would have picked him, uh, but fortunately, I didn't have to pick him. He picked me, and he said, I got your back. Now, we're not talking about a little 6th or 7th grade kid who says to us, I got your back. We're talking about God saying to us, like he said to the Jews, when the Ninevites attacked them and, and, and began again to, to capture them and to torture them, and they said, God... What's happening? God says, I got your back. He sent Nahum to speak this prophecy of judgment against Nineveh. And it was a prophecy of comfort to the Jewish people. So here we go. We read once again uh, a prophecy concerning Nineveh. uh, Verse 1, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Now, as I said to you a while ago when we prayed for the situations in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, when, when I heard the news yesterday, initially, well, yesterday was about El Paso, I was heartsick. I was heartsick. When I read the news this morning upon getting up of the shooting in Dayton, like many others, I, I, I thought, Lord, how long? Before these shootings stop. The reality is that they may not stop. They may continue. Because the sin and evil in this world will increase. Jesus said that the love of many would grow cold. Now I've always heard that and I've read that the love of many would grow cold. And never really understood how that would express itself. And now I think that part of that means that. Uh, the love of many will grow cold means that hate is going to increase. There is such hate, hate right now. This uh, young man, uh, reportedly, who, who shot uh, and killed the 20 people in, in El Paso, reportedly said, I want to kill as many Mexicans as possible. That's hate. There's a hate there against other races, against other nationalities. And, and so the, the love of many is growing cold. And as hate increases, 
evil will continue to grow. And these, as I said earlier, are signs of the times. These are reminders that, that our world as we know it now, it's spiraling to, to its conclusion, to its consummation. And so we've got to be, we've got to be prepared. But, but as we, we think about what we're going through, these thoughts that, oh, it's going to get worse. And, you know, the people are going to turn against God and people are re- even now rebelling against God. These thoughts can be very disheartening. And we might, might ask ourselves, where is God in all this? Where is God? Well, let me tell you that God is here. God is aware of what is happening. And God is not disinterested. In fact, God is in total control of the events in this world. He is not caught by surprise. Not caught by surprise. He is totally in control. I remember hearing Pastor Robert Morris from Gateway Church say one time in one of his sermons, have you ever thought about the fact that nothing ever dawns on God? He knows it all. He's in complete control. And that is what this book of Nahum is about. The word Nahum, the name Nahum means comfort. Comfort. And his prophecy is about finding comfort in the fact that God will punish His enemies and avenge the suffering of His people. We can find comfort in that. Not, not, in the, not rejoice that others are suffering. Not celebrate that others are suffering. But to find comfort that God will punish His enemies and avenge the suffering of His people. So we, we read in verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now, does that sound kind of weird? What does it mean that God is jealous? Well, first of all, we should say that uh, I should say that we should never project our human emotions upon God. God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. Our jealousy is not good, right? I mean, you don't you don't say, you know, I really marry that person. You know, she's so jealous. I, I, I like that. You know, jealousy breaks up marriages, right? Breaks up relationships. But jealousy in God is, is something different. In fact, let me explain to you that, that God's jealousy is actually an expression of His holiness. God's jealousy is an expression of His holiness in which God has no rivals. When it comes to God's holiness, and we'll learn later when it comes to His power, God has no rivals. And that's why He is jealous. Jealousy means that God is fiercely protective of His holiness, and therefore accepts no disloyalty. He accepts no rivals. He accepts no disloyalty because He is protective of His holiness. God is holy like nobody else is holy. And since He's holy like nobody else is holy, then we dare not give our loyalty to something else or to someone else because God alone is holy. So He's a jealous God because of His holiness. In fact, remember that uh, story that we read in the book of Joshua where uh, Joshua tells his people, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said, Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. And uh, Joshua's response to this, when they said, Yeah, we're going to do it with you, Joshua. Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. People, yes, we're with you. And he said to them, No, you're not. Look at Joshua 24, 19. In Joshua 24, 19, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord, 
and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. So he was telling them, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Walk into this thing with your eyes wide open. You, you cannot serve God and serve somebody else because he's holy and he's jealous for his holiness. He accepts no disloyalty. If you serve foreign gods, he will forsake you because you have forsaken him. God accepts no rivals because he has no equals. Satan is not the opposite of God. Don't think that here's God and here's Satan and they're fighting and we're caught in the middle. Satan is not the same as God. God is above him. God is more powerful and God is holy. So there is no other God. God alone is holy and powerful and there is no one like him. That's what it means that he is a jealous God. And so as we think about this, we're in a time of suffering. Maybe like the Jews were in a time of suffering. They were being attacked, taken captive, being tortured in the manner that I've already explained to you by the Assyrians. They found comfort in God. And you and I also, in our times of distress and suffering, we can also find comfort in God who has no rivals in holiness and in power. If you're going through a time of distress today, if you're going through a time of suffering, maybe it's a physical pain, maybe it's an emotional pain, maybe it's a relational pain, you're going through something that keeps you up at night, then you can find comfort today that you're serving a God. You can, you're serving a God. You're worshiping a God. You're dedicated to a God that has no rivals when it comes to His holiness and to His power. So I want to spend the rest of my time talking about those two, His holiness and His power. First of all, God is a holy God. God is a holy God. We, we read in... Um, Verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. Okay, so we know, first of all, that he is a holy God. That's why he's jealous. And he won't put up with sin forever. God has all things under control. And it may seem like he's getting, allowing people to get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. Why? Why was this young man able to kill 20 people in El Paso? The person who in Dayton killed nine people in California last week. A six-year-old boy uh, and among other victims. And in the schools that we've seen in Florida and here in Santa Fe, Texas. Why are these people able to get away with this evil? It may seem like God... You know, it's out of God's hands, but I want to tell you, God has all things under His control. It may not seem that way, but we can be comforted in this. Comforted in the fact that His holiness will not allow Him to ignore the sin and evil in this world. Just like He eventually punished the Ninevites, we know that He will also punish His enemies, those that hurt His people. Because God's holiness doesn't allow Him to ignore sin and evil. Now we'd like for him to do it now. Do it now. Today God. But we don't have the perspective that God has. We don't have the understanding that God has. And so we've got to learn to trust him. And I'll speak about that a little bit more. Uh, a little more later on. But 
For right now, let's understand that God's holiness doesn't allow him to ignore sin and evil. So, he addresses it. And how does he address it? He addresses it. Get this. He addresses it with wrath. With wrath. God, well, you know, God is a God of love. He should address it with love. There's a time when God addresses us with love. But when it comes to his enemies, those that rebel against him, those that come against his people and come against those that he has saved, those, those that he has chosen because they have chosen him, then his holiness then allows him to address this with wrath, with anger. That's why we read the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and, and look at this phrase and is what he's filled with wrath. He's filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Now this phrase in verse 2, the middle of verse 2, filled with wrath. This phrase literally means Lord of anger. Lord of anger. When I read this, I thought, really? I even looked it up in different sources, three or four, to make sure that, that the Bible scholars are in agreement about this. And they, and they were. The phrase filled with wrath literally in the Hebrew means Lord of wrath. So God is the Lord of anger. How many times have you heard him described that way? But here it is in Nahum. He is the Lord of anger. Well, I thought he was a God of love and of mercy and of grace. He is. But when it comes to sin and evil, when it comes to unrepentant people, he is the Lord of anger, filled with wrath and vengeance against his foes, venting his wrath against his enemies. Now, how God does that is totally up to him. He is sovereign. He takes no advice from me. He takes no suggestions from you. Our part is to trust Him and find comfort in His holiness and His, and His power. And yes, in His wrath against the unrepentant enemies. So when we're being attacked by the enemy of our souls, and this will happen. For some of you, it's happening right now. When we're being attacked by the enemy of our souls, we might feel despondent. We might feel defeated, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because just as Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh was meant to bring comfort to Jerusalem, it can bring comfort to us to understand that if we trust God and if we're faithful to Him, He will fight for us. He will avenge the harm that Satan has brought to us. And He will do it in due time. God's wrath, think about this, God's wrath is working on your behalf. If you're a child of God who has placed your trust solely on God, then God's wrath is working on your behalf. And let me tell you, that's much better than having a sixth grader named, nicknamed Wino to cover your back. He is holy and he is powerful. And verse 3 says that the Lord is, look at verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, God's anger is never out of control. He is the Lord of anger. The word Lord means master. He's master over his anger. His anger is always under his control and always under his command. God is slow to anger. Not like us, who maybe we might respond with anger, with fury at something that is said, maybe directly to us. People, a lot of times the social media respond to things that weren't even said to them directly. 
but something that counters their belief. They respond with anger and fury. Fury, well, that's not the kind of anger we're talking about. The Lord of anger, Lord of anger, always has his anger under control. He's slow to anger. It takes time for God's anger to come to a boiling point. Because God is patient and God wants to allow time for people to repent. How long did he wait for Nineveh to repent? How long did he give him a chance? A hundred years he waited to punish Nineveh. Because as I said, Ninevites eventually or initially repented when Jonah preached. But a hundred years later when they repented of their repentance, when they went back to their sin, God who is slow to anger had had enough. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not leave the unrepentant unpunished. Nineveh repented and God allowed a reprieve. He canceled that punishment, but then when they returned to their sin, God's anger once again burned against them. And I think we can learn a lesson from this. And I spoke about this last week. God's mercy will not continue when our repentance is discontinued. The reprieve that God allowed against Nineveh ended when they repented of their repentance. And we've got to learn from that lesson that God's mercy will not continue when our repentance is discontinued. We must learn to live in daily repentance for our sins, lest we get caught up in God's judgment for our involvement in this world of sin and evil. Because God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not leave the unrepentant unpunished. This is why God takes vengeance on His enemies, because they refuse to recognize and repent of their sin. It's true of God's enemies, and it's true of us if we don't live in daily repentance. And then, so God is a holy God, but secondly, God is a powerful God. A powerful God. Think about this. The same almighty power that is exerted for the destruction of the wicked is engaged and employed for our protection. God is able to both save and to destroy. Able to save and to destroy. The same power that is exerted for the destruction of the wicked is employed for our protection. How does God do this? Well, God gives us an idea of His power. Look at this in verse 3. Through nature. Through nature. Let's read beginning with verse 3 again. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before Him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at His presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before Him. And what we see here is that God's power... We see it, first of all, in nature. And that's not necessarily how God uses uh, His power against His enemies. It could be. It could be. But just in nature, we see a glimpse of the power that God has. But God's power, as we read in, uh, we read in these verses, is especially applied to His anger. God's power is especially applied to His anger. God is patient, but His patience will not last forever. There came a time after 120 years when God closed the door to the ark. He was patient for 120 years. But the time came when that door closed. His patience will not last forever. 
In Genesis 6, during a time of great wickedness on the earth, God said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. My spirit will not contend with man forever. His patience is great. He's slow to anger. But there's a limit to his patience. And here it is. There is a limit to God's patience. When people refuse to repent and thus make themselves God's enemies. When people refuse to repent and thus make themselves God's enemies. Because God is powerful and His power is applied to His anger. Now let me finish this. You know, what do we do with, with all this knowledge of God? What do we do? This is vastly different than what we're normally accustomed to hearing about God. It's a vastly different picture of God than we normally hear that we might even want to believe. Oh, I'd just rather believe that God is, is merciful and God is patient and, and God is forgiving and God is loving. And He's all those things. But God is also holy. And God is powerful. And His power is expressed and applied to His anger. So what do we do with this information? Two things. Two things I want to leave with you and challenge you to do. Number one, acknowledge God's holiness and worship only Him. Acknowledge God's holiness and worship only Him. Serve God alone. Consecrate yourself to God completely. Listen to me today. Consecrate yourself to God completely. No excuses. No compromise. God is a jealous God and He accepts no rivals. Not your job. Don't let your job be a rival to your consecration to God. Not your career. Not another uh, relationship. Certainly not, an, an, not a, an, an, an inappropriate relationship. But even the re familiar relationships we have, we can allow those things to, get, to come before God. God says, I am a jealous God. He's jealous of His holiness. We are to consecrate ourselves to Him before anybody else. Don't allow any rivals. He accepts no rivals. Not fame, not recognition, not power, not a seat at the political table. No rivals, only God. Totally consecrated to God. So acknowledge God, God's holiness and worship only Him. And then secondly, trust God's power and learn to wait on Him. Trust God's power and learn to wait on Him. You may not understand, may not understand what God is doing or how He's doing it. We don't know how He works. We truly don't know God's ways. But let's learn to trust Him. He is a powerful God and He will en engage and employ His power for your protection. So, wait on God. That doesn't mean you sit back and, and you do nothing. That doesn't mean that we, we can't take steps to fight against the evil in this world. But what it does mean is that we wait on God to move in due time. We trust God's ways because, look, you say you trust God. To trust God, you have to trust God's ways. You can't trust God if you don't trust His ways. So, trust God's power and learn to wait on Him. Acknowledge God's holiness and worship only Him. And trust God's power and learn to wait on Him. I'm going to invite you to bow in prayer as we turn to God now. We'll spend a few moments after we pray seeking God today. Take a few minutes responding to this message on God's holiness and God's power. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we're, we're grateful for your word today. Grateful for this message that we find in the, the book of, of Nahum, the, the prophecy of Nahum. I ask that you would bring this message alive to us today, Father. As we go through this series this week, that we might embrace what you want to tell us and how we can practice that. Today, help us to see your holiness. That you are a holy God and that you accept no disloyalty because you have no rivals. You have no equals. Help us to see that and to understand what it is that you're calling us to. An exclusive relationship of consecration to you. We won't find the joy, the peace, the security in our lives until we understand that and practice that. So help us to acknowledge only you. And help us to trust in your power, God. Your power, which is engaged for our protection. Which is employed for our protection. You have our back, God. Help us to know that. And to just trust you. Worship you in the midst of the pain. In the midst of the storm. To worship you and wait on you. Because you will never, never forsake us or abandon us. You will never disappoint us. We trust in you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.